welcome to The World as We Know It, a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Brad. My name is Kiki. And as always, we are your hosts. This week is a discussion on the nation of New Zealand. Zealand. So let's begin with some overall thoughts about New Zealand and our initial FR ratings. Kiki? Alright. Gonna come in with my Kiwi accent. <laughs> Just kidding. That's good for somebody's feelings. Anyway, my overall thoughts about New Zealand um, come mostly from my knowledge of Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Um, a movie called Whale Rider, which I'll discuss probably <laughs> closer to the end. <laughs> Uh, and my roommate, who was an au pair there for some time, and she talks about it a lot. Um, so what I know about New Zealand, oh, and from, like, my, my knowing about James Cook and the children's novel Endeavor. Um, so things I do know about New Zealand is that it's beautiful and that there are a lot of sheep and that the weather is bad. Oh, also, because I had a friend who, um, she didn't study abroad there. But she just backpacked there, mm-hmm. and then she got married, and she stayed there. So she posts pictures all the time. And I'm like, this bitch. It's common to backpack there. Probably because Advi- all the mountains. And adventure stuff. tourism kind of stuff. We'll yeah. get into that. Here's the thing. I've always been a little turned off by it, because if I'm going to be on an island, I feel like it should be a nice weather island. But I don't like being on nice weather islands that much. So maybe I would want to be on like a stormy, cold island where they wear sweaters What do you have on. against nice weather islands? The nicest places to live, one might say. I just don't love the temperature but anyway what are you what's your so my fr rating i'm gonna say it's a three uh, okay three oh and also because oh i can put it up to a four actually because i had another teacher from new zealand for a geography class in undergrad who shared a lot about how he lived there and about the maori people and we watched a lot of haka and from what i understand like maori people are like the people to know cool all right wow. now well, you can a whole yours. point from him wow strong um, my overall thoughts are, I think it's a very interesting place. I hear a lot of anecdotes from people from New Zealand who are kind of disgruntled that, like, a lot of maps leave New Zealand off the maps and stuff That's like really that. That's really rude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I feel like having done research now, they don't get the respect they deserve, kind of like an Australia shadow, um... But, that being said, before research, I would have given myself around a two or a three. Because I'll also have consumed a lot of media that either takes place in New Zealand or pertains to New Zealand. Um, be it like Lord of the Rings trilogy, stuff like that. And also um, The Last Samurai. A lot of movies filmed there. The Last Samurai? Filmed in New Zealand. Because they have a mountain that looks like Mount Fuji. But isn't surrounded by like the forest around Mount Fuji. So Interesting. They can film there. Uh, I, there's also like some like, aren't Flight of the Concords from New Zealand yeah and also like the um, the tr- like the comedy group that does like what we do in the shadows and the guy who just did Thor Ragnarok that guy's New Zealand yeah we'll probably get into famous New people Zealand. okay yeah we'll get into that okay yeah but, discussion. so I've come keep across keep it, it on brand <laughs> just um, kidding this is on brand bro. yeah so FR rating 2 to a 3 probably more of a 2 
um, pre-research, and I decided to talk about it. Here's like, the thing about our FR ratings is that you always go really humble, and I always believe I know more than I do, and nothing ever changes. Like, I never feel like I know more, even after research. It can also be a perspective thing where, compared to the average person, we're going to have really high FR ratings. That's true. But compared to people who are from there, you don't want to overstate. We need to have simple people on this podcast <laughs> as a comparison so we can benchmark our own. Friends. This week's simple person is. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get some, like, undergrads or something. All right. Anyway, um, I'm going to give you guys a Snapchat of New Zealand. You're going to Snapchat New Zealand to us? I'm gonna, yeah, I've got Snapchat on the brain. Um, so, New Zealand is uh, an island nation comprised of two major islands. Um, and the capital is Wellington, which is on the southern island, but the capital or the most populous city is Auckland. The anthem is God Defend New Zealand and also God Save the Queen because they are a Commonwealth. Burr, 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 Commonwealth country. Anyway, so <laughs> the political leader is Prime Minister, uh, I think it's Jacinda or Jacinda Ardern, of note, very cool lady. Um, she's actually the youngest Prime Minister in the world right now. She's a lady. She had a baby in office. I basically agree with her on most things that have to do with general policies and not you know, New Zealand-specific things, because I don't know enough about it to Except make liking babies. Except, yeah, except for fuck babies. I hate them. <laughs> Um, I don't know if she likes her own baby. I haven't interviewed her. To be, to be fair, yes. We don't know if she likes her own baby or not, so she's still safe. She's still a very cool lady. She's still, she's still a cool lady. Um, the governor general is Dame Patsy Reddy. Um, if you don't know what a governor general is, it's for all Commonwealth countries, it's basically like the queen's appointment on the land. Um, so coming from like the very traditional role of governor, um, it's it's that role. So it's all mostly an honorary position or like a figurehead position. But that's Patsy Reddy. So there's like two ladies who have some pretty cool offices there. And they have a unitary parliamentary constitutional monarchy, which is the same as most Commonwealth countries. The etymology of New Zealand. So actually in the Maori word for it is Aotearoa. I'm sure that Brad will get into more later. So I'm not going to say it again. But it was originally named after the Dutch province province of Zealand by Dutch cartographers, and then James Cook anglicized that to New Zealand with an A instead of two Zs, um, because the Dutch were like, oh, it's the land. The land. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, population. It's coming up on 5 million. Um, it's like 4,927,350, according to the census. Knock it on 5 mil. <laughs> they're, they're getting there. Um, that's about 74% European, 15% Maori, 12% Asian, 7.4% Pacific people, so people around like Tonga, and, yeah. and then 1.2% African, Latin American, Middle Eastern, um, and that's like a bigger category than other, which was right below that. Do you want to hear a fun fact that this is, it can, this cannot fit into history. It's, okay, sure. It's, yeah, it's let's too, hear that It's too anecdotal. Right so, um... There's a lot of Europeans in New Zealand because a lot of immigration happened in the 1840s. True that. A big place they immigrated from, Bohemia, of course. What? There's some what? Czech people in New Zealand, so there you go. That's cool. I just assumed that they were all coming from Australia, nope. and so they were all prisoners. <laughs> Hungary, Eastern Europe. That's very neat. Totes boho. Um, yeah, so it's like the Bohemian <laughs> Revolution's happening down under in a little to the, to the yeah. east. <laughs> Anyway, um, religion, so it's a pretty secular place. 
Um, 55% people identify with one or, one or more religions. Um, 49% of those are Christians, of which 12% Catholic, 12% Anglican, 8.5% Presbyterian, and other Christian Christian denominations. And 42% claim no religion. Um, so I feel like it's kind of like, yeah, people who are religious don't really let it affect them too much. And, and this is similar in places where it's like, there's a lot of maybe cultural religion, but secular society. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> geography, so it's two islands, about 900 miles east of Australia, across the Tasman Sea. And I think we're going to hear from our boy, Abel Tasman, a little bit later. We might remember him from our Fiji episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the GDP is $2.6 billion, all in sheep money. <laughs> <laughs> and the demonym for someone who is from New Zealand is a New Zealander officially, but... Everyone call them Kiwis. Well, if you pull the wool over your eyes, you do. <laughs> oh, God. But they call themselves Kiwis, so it's not, like, derogatory or anything. I don't know. I wouldn't... Would you refer to someone who's, like, of Maori descent as Kiwi? I don't like, know. That's, like, a... I feel like it's a general thing from someone... Maybe we'll ask... Like, who decided upon that? We're it's gonna probably a white Hannah. person. We're going to ask Hannah. I was watching a speech from cool Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and she said something like a Kiwi future on her thing. So she's speaking to all Kiwis. I don't think she would she yeah. would alienate tribal people. But I guess we'll get into that um, in our history and maybe make some estimates. And hopefully someone will write, write in and educate us real good. That's the dream, Kiki. Remains to be seen. I want other people to do our work for us. All right, let's get into it. All right. Take us back to antiquity. What? But, Okay. Once, we'll get to that phrase in okay, a second. We're not we going to get to. Because... You're right, you're right. We can't get to antiquity, and you're going to tell us fucking Listen, why. All right. So, history of New Zealand. I have some brief um, asides here. Tiki already covered the etymology pretty I didn't mean to take well. it. He can, he can get into it better, because it means some cool things. Um, I'm just going to give you some historical background please, to the please, etymology. Please. So, I'm going to stop interrupting you and let you talk. <laughs> please. Um, Dutch explorer Abel Tasman, hey, our boy, sighted New Zealand <laughs> in 1642. Hey, hey, Abel. <laughs> We call him Abel Abel. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> you want to throw in some Jane the Virgin while you're here? While you're already talking? Here's the thing. I got to think about how Jane the Virgin relates to this. And we'll get there. Okay, you get on that. Um, so our boy Abel Tasman sighted New Zealand in 1642, named it Staten Island, in honor of the States General, the Dutch Parliament. That seems familiar to something we know from American it, history. It does. He wrote, it is possible that this land joins to the, state, the Staten or Staten land, but it is uncertain. And he referred the state and land, referring to a landmass of the same name at the southern tip of South America that was discovered in 1616. Um, in 1645, Dutch cartographers renamed this land uh, Nova Zealandia after the Dutch pro- province of Zeeland, um, but James Cook Zeeland. anglicized it to New Zealand. Um, so, what is this word again, Kiki? Aotearoa. Aotearoa. That's it, hard to it's, say. It's, it's written very phonetically because of the limitations of the English alphabet. Aotearoa. Okay. Um, so this is the current Maori name for New Zealand. It's unknown if they had a name for the whole country, um, North and South Islands together, before the arrival of the Europeans, although it's doubtful. Um, and there are several traditional names for the two different main islands, including for the North Island, Te Ika Amaui, the fish of Maui, or Maui, uh, and then Te uh, Y Pona, Ponamu. Wait, where is it? Te Wapanamu. 
I would call that Te Wai Poonamu. Wai Poonamu? Okay. The Waters of the Greenstone. Um, or there's another name for it for the South Island. Te Waka Ueo Raki. Raki. Um, or the Canoe of Ueo Raki, which is a mythological figure from for the South Island. Um, and then, of course, Europeans named, named the islands the North and the South Island. <laughs> oh, uh, Great. <laughs> good job. <laughs> Um, I'm also sorry. I'm gonna say like apologize now for butchering all these names. Oh, From what hard. I know about Polynesian names, is that you gotta pronounce every one of the vowels. I'm not good at that. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, okay, the geography of New Zealand is complicated nowadays because New Zealand itself refers to these two main islands, the North Island and the South Island. The territory of New Zealand or the realm of New Zealand today encompasses a very, very many things, including a very weird little. Uh, pie slice of Antarctica called the Ross Dependency. So, um, the, realm of, the realm of New Zealand is one of 16 Commonwealth realms, um, and it's the entire area over which the Queen of New Zealand is sovereign, and it comprises the islands of north and south of New Zealand, Tokelau, the Ross Dependency, the Cook Islands, and it's spelled N-I-U-E, and there's three vowels after an N, so I'm not going to even try to say it. Um, uh, and so the Cook Islands and Niu, this, this is an N-word, are self-governing states in free association with New Zealand. Uh, the Parliament of New Zealand cannot pass legislation for these countries, but can, with their consent, act on behalf of them in foreign affairs and defense. Uh, Tokelau is classified as a non-governing, as a non-self-governing territory, but is administered by a council of three elders, which is really fucking cool. Um, and then the Ross Dependency, this pie slice out of Antarctica is New Zealand's territorial claim in Antarctica, where it operates the Scott Base Research Facility. Um, New Zealand nationality law treats all parts of the realm equally, so most people born in New Zealand, the Cook Islands, Niu, Tokelau, and the Ross Dependency are all New Zealand citizens. So I kind of put, cool. put that up front because it's it's gonna be kind of chunky to say. I've always heard end. about the Ross Dependency, dependency and like the research base there. Doesn't you hear about anybody going to Antarctica? They're going to Ross something. And I thought, at first I thought the Ross dependency was like a Friends episode, but no. it's <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> um, Alright, so let's get into the actual history. And so, Kiki said, take us back to antiquity, only for the first time we really can't. Because there is no antiquity. The history of New Zealand dates back only like 700 years, when it was discovered and settled by, Pol- by Polynesian people, or Polynesian people. Polynesians. Wait. It sounded like you said Peloponnesians. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are different completely from completely, the Polynesians. Complete, keeping you on your toes, Kiki. Um, so this is one of the most recently settled inhabited places on Earth. That's very cool. I think it's very cool. So New Zealand was originally settled by Polynesians from eastern Polynesia. Genetic and archaeological evidence suggests that humans immigrated from Taiwan to Melanesia and then traveled east to the Society Islands. Um... After a pause of some hundreds of years, and then a new wave of, wave of exploration led to the discovery and settlement of New Zealand. Uh, current evidence, archaeological or genetic, um, places this initial settlement around 1280 to 1320 CE. So, yeah, well into the throes of every, every other civilization's you know medieval modern history, um, which means we don't. Which means the history might be a little shorter than the other ones, but no less dense because there's still a lot of cultural density and 
stuff goes on. I think it's cool how like you know people will move to where there is space, and they go at their own pace. And like this is like one of those like frontiers that was inhabited by, I guess I said people of color before European explorers got to it. Yeah, I think it's just kind of neat. It's also really interesting because islands are these little microcosms of you know life and habitat and stuff like that and it's one of the best places to see the effects of humanity on biodiversity and ecology because humans got there during the times in which there was it was close enough to the times of which like recorded history as far as like written history so we can see the effects of humans on like you know large animals and stuff like that yeah. because even in like in, in true antiquity humans it got like you know, exterminated a whole bunch of, like, large island-dwelling mammals, you know, that we don't see anymore mm-hmm. because they just were hungry. Yeah, and what we talk about, like, when you're, I think what you're getting is, like, when we talk about, like, island flora and fauna grows very independently, so they become very strong sects of themselves. Yep. Um, whereas, like, when human influence, it's like the butterfly effect or, like, from that uh, sci-fi novel about when he steps on the butterfly when he goes to kill the dinosaur. It's and it comes Ray back. Bradbury. Ray Bradbury. What is that? Um, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, but you know what I'm doing. Every listener of this podcast knows what I'm talking about. Um, so to see something so undisturbed for so long, I mean, we'll never get to capture that now, but it's very cool. Anyway. We'll get into some more. We'll talk about birds. We'll, we'll talk about birds in a minute. Oh man, fucking birds. I fucking love them. Dude, birds. They're flying around. Those bastards. Okay. In the in the Mary language, the word and what's the what's the correct pronunciation of this word? So I used to think it was Maori because Maori. that's what it looks like. But okay. my friend from Australia, Nicola, who may know, I said that to her once and she's like, Yeah fucking asshole, it's Mary. Mary. <laughs> so it's like Mary. Um Mary. like so yeah, you get all the also um Instead of, like, making it several, like, Maori, Maori. I thought we said all the vowels. I I am saying them now. I'm saying it Maori. 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 We can consult someone on the internet. We should. And while you're talking about it, I'm going to get a pronunciation of Maori up, and we'll settle this once and for all. Excellent. Because it's important because the spelling of Maori or Maori, uh, with or without this Macron, the little accent mark over the A, um, is inconsistent in, like, the English language media in New Zealand. Um, although, a lot of people have tried to push the fact that it should be standard spelling with the Macron over the A. Um, okay, here we go. Let's get my volume all the way up. Correct pronunciation this on the This is from pronunciationbook at youtube.com. All right. Maori. 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 All right. All right. Thanks, pronunciation book. Pronunciation book. <laughs> Our second sponsor after <laughs> Fiji Water. All right. The word Maori means normal, natural, or ordinary in the Maori language. In legends and oral traditions, the word distinguished ordinary mortal human beings, like you or I, or the... <laughs> well, you don't know that. The, well, <laughs> There's only one way to find out. <laughs> I'm not going to kill you, Kiki. <laughs> or the Tengata <laughs> Maori from deities and spirits known as the Wairua. Likewise, why Maori denotes fresh water as opposed to salt water, so like ordinary things we can drink. Um, there are many cognate words in many Polynesian languages, all deriving from this Proto-Polynesian Ma'akwali, which has reconstructed meaning true, real, genuine. Okay, so linguistic family trees, they're interesting. Now we know about Maori. Let's get into the peoples. 
So the earliest period of Maori settlement is known as the Archaic, the Moa Hunter, or the Colonization Period. And they're called the Moa Hunters because there were these huge Moa birds endemic to New Zealand that they hunted into extinction because they were real tasty and real big. And they're like bigger than ostriches, right? By like a lot. I don't know. Here's the thing. I would imagine a Moa being like from the movie Up, Kevin. The, the snipe? The snipe. Um, I think I saw somewhere that Moa birds back here were 20 to 30 kilograms, which isn't, isn't gigantic. That's not ostrich size. It's, they're on a small island. Um, it says here on its Wikipedia, 3.6 meters in height with neck outstretched. Oh, okay, so it was 200 kilograms. Okay, so they're, they're huge. Okay. Yeah, they're real big boys, and I know this because my sister had a book of extinct birds um, growing up, and she made me very scared of, <laughs> of Moa specifically because they could kill people very easily. Okay, so Maori, the, Maori, the Maori people... The Maori, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Maori. Um, so the Maori people, um, they hunted these large Moa... Um, they were so scarce that so they were extinct because there's no large mammals on in, in New Zealand. So uh, originally, so the Maori culture underwent major changes after these like um, you know, ecological shifts, um, and they they started to branch off into real regional differences. Um, so in areas where it was possible to grow taro root or kumara, uh, horticulture became important. I think it was on the southern island in general. Um, there were other wild wild plants on the southern island. Um, and then uh, warfare also became more prominent as you know, tribal cultures originated, uh, reflecting this increased competition for land and other resources. Um, uh, and as elsewhere in the Pacific, cannibalism was part of warfare. All right. And nice. so, yes, nice. Uh, we're a pro cannibalism, but no, we're not. Okay. <laughs> um, so, leadership was based on a system of chieftainship. Uh, where someone would ride a whale, I'm just kidding, we'll get to that later, uh, which was often but not always hereditary, although chiefs, male or female, needed to demonstrate leadership abilities to avoid being superseded by more dynamic individuals. The most important units of pre-European Maori society were the wanahu, or extended family, well, so the household, and the hapu, or the group of, which is a group of uh, wanahu, so more like a village kind of thing. After this came the Iwi or the tribe, which makes me wonder if this word I-W-I, Iwi, contributes to people being called Kiwis now. Maybe. I, I don't wonder. Know. It's, it's, I a, wonder. it's too close for a coincidence. Um, and this tribes or these Iwis consist of groups of these hapu. So larger villages, maybe larger towns, that kind of thing. Um, related hapu would often trade goods with each other, they'd cooperate on major projects, um, but through conflict between hapu was also common. Um, so traditional Maori society, uh, Maori uh, societies preserved historically through oral traditions, narrative songs, and chants. Um, skilled experts could recite the tribal genealogies back for hundreds of years. Also strong um, uh, traditions of art, including these oratory arts, uh, song composition in multiple different genres, dance forms, including the haka, which we'll talk about later in culture, as well as weaving, uh, wood carving, and uh, Ta Moko, which is those Maori tattoos we see. Okay, so that's the Maori peoples and um, kind of their structure of society and the two islands, and then the Europeans show up. So the first Europeans known to reach New Zealand were the crew of Dutch explorer Abel Tasman, 
who arrived, <laughs> who arrived in his ships called the Heenskerk and the Zeehaen. Um, Tasman anchored at the north end of the southern island in the Golden Bay. He named it Murderer's Bay because... Nice. Fuck you, colonials. Um, <laughs> in, de- horrible. in December 1642, um, he only uses it as a stopping point because he was really going northward to Tonga um, after he was attacked by the local Maori peoples, the Maori peoples. Tasman sketched sections of the two islands' west coasts. He named them the Statenland. We've been through this, all the naming conventions. Um, yes, um... Later, uh, British naval captain James Cook, he um, took the HM Bark Endeavor and he visited the islands more than 100 later, leading to that Anglicization of the name. Alright, so from the 1790s, the waters around New Zealand were visited by the French, the British, and the Americans, um, who were all whaling, uh, sealing, and trading ships. Um, The crews traded European goods, including guns and metal tools, for... Maori food, water, wood, flax, and sex. Maori were reputed to be enthusiastic and very canny traders, so there was some civility between the relationships, Um, although because different levels of technology, institutions, and property rights, um, because these differed greatly between the the Maori peoples and the European societies, there were some some conflicts that arose. Uh, One notable one is the French explorer Marc-Joseph Marion Dufresne, uh, in 1772, he was killed, um, his ship was destroyed, and uh, but beside that, most contact was peaceful. Alright, so re- from original exploration that turns to long-term settlement, and I have here a note that the Maori word Pakeha um, refers to people of European descent, or white people. Um, okay. Gringos. Yeah. <laughs> so European or Pakeha settlement increased through the early decades of the, eight, of the 19th century with numerous trading stations established mainly port cities in the North Island in particular um, pretty influential in the the eventual settlement is the introduction of Christianity to New Zealand in 1814 by Samuel Marston who traveled to the Bay of Islands where he founded a mission station on behalf of the Church of England's Church Missionary Society good job Marston by 1840, over 20 stations had been established, um, and from these missionaries, the Maori peoples learned about Christianity, um, farming practices and trades, you know, reading and writing Western languages. Um, uh, in the beginning in 1820, this is interesting, linguist Samuel Lee worked with a Maori chief named Hongi Hika, or Hika to transcribe the Maori language into a written form, which becomes really, really instrumental lang- uh, later in, for- in terms of like creating treaties and constitutions um, also here are these land rights becoming a point of contention many European settlers, settlers bought land from the from Maori from Maori peoples uh, but due to misunderstandings and different concepts of land ownership there was conflict and bitterness, bitterness. Um, in 1839 the New Zealand company which is like a trading company announced plans to buy large tracts of land and establish colonies in New Zealand. Um, the missionaries did not like this. Um, they wanted the British to control European settlers in New Zealand to slowly acclimate them. That, if you remind, um, remind our listeners of the Fiji episode in the linguist armchair when she talks about missionaries and their work to, you mean, yeah, colonize, but also to write down the, like previously oral-only languages, or languages that are only stood orally into the English understanding 
was it Guatemala or Paraguay that had those really strong missions that fought against the government? That was Guatemala. That was Guatemala? Okay. That was cool. Sometimes missionaries do good things. Sometimes. You know, like a 90 Day Fiance. No, okay. When missionary Josh. My next slide is called Conflict. <laughs> <laughs> conflict. Um, <laughs> the effect of contact on the Maori peoples varied. Um, in some inland areas, life went on more or less unchanged, although the introduction of European tools, such as you know, fish hooks or the hand axe, um, these were acquired through trade and led to you know, big advancements. And at the, at, the under, at the other end of the scale, tribes that frequently encountered Europeans, such as the Nagapuhi in the Northland, they underwent major changes. Um, so before the introduction of the Europeans, the Maoris obviously had no long-distance weapons except for, like, spears or these towels. And the introduction of the musket had an enormous impact on warfare, as would make sense. Um, so tribes with muskets would attack tribes without them, you know, killing or enslaving many. As a result, guns became very, very valuable. We see this also in, in America with, you know, the Native American tribes. Yeah. Um, as guns proliferated westward, had a huge impact. So did horses. Um, so guns were very, very valuable. They would trade huge quantities of goods for a single musket. And so from 1805 to 1843, these wars called the Musket Wars raged until, you know, pal until balances of power had really been achieved. When, you know, all that was left with tri were the tribes that had muskets. Um, in 1835, the peaceful Moriori of the Chantham Islands were attacked, enslaved, and nearly exterminated by more mainland um, Maori tribes. Uh, in the 1901 census, only 35 Moriori people were recorded through numbers. Um, and the Moriori people were, were the peoples who really had the most, like, complex and intricate, like, tattooing systems. So okay. they, were, they were really, really interesting culture, but they just became victimized because of the proliferation of technology and warfare. Um, around this time, many Maori peoples converted to Christianity. The reasons for this have been hotly debated. Uh, some include the social and cultural disruption caused by the musket wars and European contact, which makes sense. Other factors may have been the um, appeal of a religion that promotes peace and forgiveness. I'm sure the missionaries thought that. Um, maybe also a desire to emulate the Europeans just to gain similar abundance of material goods. Another theory is that the Maoris' uh, polytheistic culture easily accepted the new god into their pantheon and were like, cool, yep. one more dude. <laughs> That's a really easy way to uh, convert people is be like, hey, you can put our god with the rest of your gods, but um, just make him number one. So this leads us into our next period of history for New Zealand, which is the, the history of, or the period of British sovereignty. <laughs> It's weird that it plays whenever I say British sovereignty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in, in 1788, the colony of New South Wales had been founded, which is ironic considering how many sheep there are now. In <laughs> um, so according to the future governor, Captain Arthur Phillip, in his amended constitution, the colony of South Wales included all the islands adjacent in the Pacific Ocean within the latitudes of blah, 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 and blah, 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 which included most of New Zealand, except for the southern half of the southern island, weirdly. In 1825, um, Van Diemen's Land, which is some Dutch people, uh, becoming a separate colony, the southern border of New South Wales was altered to, you know, 
the rest of basically all of New Zealand. So basically, um, this colony of New South Wales came by the early 1800s to encompass all of the major parts of New Zealand. So New Zealand itself was first mentioned in British statute in the Murders Abroad Act, 1817. It made it easier for a court to punish murders or manslaughters committed in places not within His Majesty's dominions. (laughs) You gotta have a Murders Abroad Act. Obviously, what are you gonna do without it? Um, And the governor of New South Wales was was given increased legal authority over New Zealand, also because of increased conflicts and stuff like this. The jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of New South Wales over New Zealand was initiated in the New South Wales Act of 1823. Um, After this paragraph, I'm going to really try to trim down on the British legal goings-on, because it's really intricate and stuff, and I don't want to hear about British parliamentary acts and stuff. I mean, I'm sure someone does, but they're not invited to this Yeah, this is not a British parliamentary podcast. Um, um, where was I? Uh, in response to complaints from some missionaries about lawless sailors and adventurers in New Zealand, the British government appointed James Busby as official resident in 1832. <laughs> in 1834, he encouraged Maori chiefs to assert their sovereignty with the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1835. Not the same one as the one we're thinking of. Okay. This is acknowledged by King William IV. Uh, Busby was provided with neither legal authority nor military support and was very ineffective in controlling the European population. Good job, Busby. Okay. This leads us to the first treaty with the, pe- the Maori peoples, the Treaty of Waitangi. Or Waitangi. That's how I would have said it. Okay. In or Waitangi. A- Waitangi. That sounds much better. So in 1834, the New Zealand Company announced its plans to establish colonies in New Zealand. This and the increased commercial interests of merchants in like Sydney and London spurred the British to take to take stronger action. Um, so William Captain William Hobson was sent to New Zealand to persuade the Maori people to cede their sovereignty to the British Crown. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, the treaty gave the Treaty of Waitangi gave Maori sovereignty over the lands and possessions and all the rights of British citizens. So they would retain sovereignty over their lands and their possessions. They'd be treated as British citizens. What it gave the British in return depends on the language version of the treaty that is referred to. rut oh. The English version can be said to give the British crown sovereignty over New Zealand. But in the Maori version, the crown receives Kawanatanga, which is arguably is a lesser power than sovereignty. It's kind of like a claim, not really like you have total ownership. So there's different interpretations of the treaty. Uh, and dispute over the true meaning and intent of this of either party remains an issue today. Oh wow! So people still bring up this treaty as like a bullshit. Yeah. Um, the Maori have welcomed the the Pakiha or the white people for, the, for <laughs> trading opportunities and the guns that they brought. However, it soon became clear that they had underestimated the number of settlers that would arrive in their lands. Uh, these iwi or tribes, whose land was the base of the main settlements, quickly lost much of their land and autonomy through government acts. Some Iwiwi tribes prospered. Um, until about 1860, the city of Auckland bought most of its fruit from Maori peoples who grew it and sold it themselves. Many Iwi owned flour mills, ships, other items of European technology. Some even exported food to Australia for a brief period during the 1850s gold rush. And yes, there was an 1850s gold rush on the southern New Zealand island. That's kind of cool. Um, although race relations were generally peaceful in this period, there were a lot of conflicts over who had ultimate power in particular areas. See the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, the governor 
um, the governor from the British side or the Maori chiefs in that area. Uh, one such conflict was the Northern or Flagstaff War of the 1840s, um, during which the um, the Maori city of Kororareka. I would like Kororareka. Kororareka was sacked. Kororareka. So this leads to the period known as the Land Wars. So the Pakeha, or the white people, had little understanding of all that, and they they accused the Maoris of holding onto lands they did not use efficiently. That is such a shitty thing. No, it's a dick move. I mean, I guess like people do it all the time. Like, you're not using this right, so it's ours now. Crop like, rotation. That's what I would do to my younger brother, but also what my older siblings would do to me. <laughs> like, you're not playing with this correctly, so I'm going to play with it instead. I thought you meant all the land you owned. I was like, how much land oh, do you have, Kiki? <laughs> uh, I wish. I wish my parents had engaged me and my siblings in like like land disputes so that we could like learn to stand up for ourselves. <laughs> oh, you pokehas. Um So competition for land was one important cause of the New Zealand Wars or the Land Wars of 1860s and 1870s, in which the Taranaki and the Waikato regions were, that's not really Japanese, were, inv- were invaded by colonial troops, and the Maoris of these, re- of these regions had some of their lands taken from them. Uh, the confiscation of the wars left bitterness that remains to this day. So the combination of war, land confiscations, disease, assimilations, and intermarriage, um, as well as land laws leading to poor housing, alcohol abuse, as well as, as, well as general disillusionment, Cause a fall in the the Maori population from around eighty six thousand in seventeen sixty nine to around seventy thousand in eighteen forty, and then reaching an all time low of eighty four thousand in eighteen seventy four. The ultimate low was forty two thousand in eighteen ninety ninety six. Numbers began to recover after this, but you know, on the eve of the twentieth century, the Maori population was reaching its lowest point. Um. Uh, so the North Island was convulsed by the land wars. The South Island, with a lower Maori population and is smaller in general, it was more peaceful. In the 1860s, there was gold discovered at this gully in the central part. Uh, there was a gold rush. Uh, Dunedin became one of the wealthiest cities in the country, uh, and the South Island represented financing and uh, resented the financing of the North Island's wars. Um, in fact, in 1865, Parliament had to def- defeat a proposal to make the South Island independent. So we almost had an Antigua and Barbuda situation yeah. going on. So this leads into the 1900s, the 20th century. Uh, and I forgot to mention, in 1840 is when sheep started being brought over because wool and mutton became a really big agricultural thing. Okay, so as we know, there's lots of sheep there now. Yeah. starts in the 1840s. In the 1880s, New Zealand's economy grew from one based on wool and local trade to the export of wool, cheese, butter, and frozen beef and mutton to Britain. The change was enabled by the invention of refrigerated steamships in 1882, and a result of the large market demands overseas. Seems like a really long way for your perishables to travel, even on a refrigerated steamship. You gotta freeze your mutton. In order to increase production... <laughs> freeze your mutton. That's gonna say, it's like, like hold your chops. <laughs> freeze your, your mutton. mutton. Um, in order to increase production... <laughs> he said sheepishly, alongside a more <laughs> intensive use of factor inputs. Um, okay, blah, 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 blah. What this all means is that um, New Zealand's highly productive agriculture gave it probably the world's highest standard of living at this time, with fewer um, at the rich importance of the scale, but the average person in New Zealand was very, very, very well because of all this good business. 
Um, so New Zealand initially expressed interest in joining the proposed Federation of the Australian Colonies. They even attended the 1891 National Australia Convention in Sydney. Interest in the proposed Australian Federation faded, and New Zealand ultimately decided against joining the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901. They were almost part of Australia. Uh, so New Zealand instead changed from being a colony to a separate dominion in 1907. And a dominion gave it equality and status to like Australia and Canada. Good on you, New Zealand. Good on you, mate. Good on ya. Uh, dominion status was a public mark of the self-governance that had evolved over half a century through responsible government. Quote, unquote. Just under one million people lived in New Zealand in 1907. And cities such as Auckland and Wellington were growing rapidly. So, so they, they didn't suckland, you know. Um, <laughs> so, at this point, I skip over a lot of just British internal proceedings and like the immigration acts to get people over there and like the tax reforms and that's boring shit. Yeah, no one care about that stuff. We want to get on the move and learn about broad strokes. Let like get on move. Yes, World War Two. <laughs> let's get into the World Wars, the major hitting points of modern history. Okay. So the country remained an enthusiastic member of the British Empire during World War One. So at the outbreak of the war, um, in August 4th, um, okay, that's when the war started, uh, during the war, more than 120,000 New Zealanders enlisted to the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Around 100,000 served overseas, um, 18,000 died, and about 41,000 men were listed as wounded. They had a significant impact on the war, as being part of the British Empire. Um, conscription had been enforced since 1909, so you could say they couldn't have really avoided it. Um, there was less opposition when, once the outbreak of war happened, though. Um, the labor movement, well, and just like in Britain, there's there's two movements: the labor movement, and there's like the more popular. Uh, uh, the Republican Party and the Labor Party is that what you're talking about? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so, like the Labor Party is like if we're talking like the closest correlation in American politics are like the liberals, like the Workers Party. And then the Republicans are those conservative groups, right-wing, left-wing. I have more later. I can't remember the other one now. The labor movement at this time was passive, was pacifistic. What's that word? Pacifistic, yeah. Like they're passive? Like they're... I know what it means. It just sounds weird. Oh. I've never heard pacifistic before. Yeah, can... they're pacifist. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. This may have been a British um, researcher who wrote this. Um, so they, they opposed the war. Um, and the New Zealand Labor Party officially... I think you just call them pacifists. Yeah. Pacifistic. No, pay... uh, yeah, never mind. Just keep going. Yeah, okay. Do your podcast. The New Zealand Labor Party and uh, was formed in 1916 as part of this pacifist movement. Um, and the Maori tribes that had been close to the government, they sent their young men to volunteer. Um, okay. So, what else do we have here as far as World War I? Um, um, so, unlike in Britain... Uh, relatively few women became involved. Women did serve as nurses. Around like 640 joined the services. So I think in Britain it was much more, a larger part of the, of the female population became involved in the war front because they were like on the on the shores of war all the time, basically. Uh, so let's see. The, the New Zealand forces themselves, they captured Western Samoa from Germany in the early stages of the war. Um, and they administered that country until Samoan independence in 1962. That's interesting. Um, okay, the Samoans also did greatly resent their imperialism, and they blamed the catastrophic 1918 flu epidemic on the New Zealand rule. So that's not good. Um, and then uh, more than 2,700 men died in the Gallipoli um, campaign. 
Um, and the heroism of the New Zealand soldiers in that failed campaign made their sacrifices very iconic in New Zealand memory. And this is often credited with um, within the British Empire securing the psychological independence of the nation. It's like, we've we paid our dues um, to the empire. We, we've also contributed, so we've earned it. So after World War I, um, New Zealand trying to signed the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. They joined the League of Nations, and they did pursue an independent foreign policy while Britain controlled its defense. Um, okay, they depended on the British Royal Navy for military security. Um, and op officials in Wellington, which is the capital of New Zealand, they trusted the Conservative Party governments in London, um, but the Labour Party did not. However, the British Labour Party itself took power in the, in, um, back in Britain in 1924, um, and the New Zealand government felt threatened by the Labour's foreign policy because, you know, it relied on the League of Nations at the time, um, and, you know, Wellington did not trust the League of Nations, that the, and they didn't believe that the world was going to, like, stay peaceful under the auspices of the League of Nations. Um, at this time, the Labour Party in New Zealand emerged as a force because they had a, a socialist platform and won about a quarter of the vote. Uh, it appealed to working-class solidarity. But it wasn't very effective because a large faction of the working class voted for conservative candidates. But there was there was growing strength for the Labour Party um, and socialism in New Zealand, and we'll see this after or before World War II, a little bit more. Um, so the Great Depression hits, and the Great Depression affects New Zealand very strongly because it affects Britain very strongly, and because New Zealand's economy is based on exports to Britain and in Australia, the Great Depression has a big effect. And let's see, uh, in World War II, that broke out in 1939, as we all know, and uh, New Zealand once again played their proper role as defending their proud place in the British Empire. It contributed some 120,000 troops. Uh, they mainly fought in North Africa, Greece, and Crete, and Italy. Um, and then in the Pacific War, uh, war um, sphere, they relied on the Royal Navy and later the, New the United States to protect New Zealand from Japanese forces. Although Japan itself had no interest in New Zealand in the first place, um, it had already overreached when it invaded New Guinea in 1942. Um, doop, doop, doop. They fought in the Solomon Islands in 1943. Um, yep, and their armed forces peaked at 150,000 in 1942, and uh, 10,000 people died in World War II. So they had another big um, contribution to the war. All right, so this gets into the post-war politics, which is... Um, is the most heavily um, party poli poli political party kind of frame in New Zealand. It gets kind of tedious. Um, the Labour Party remained in power, and in 1945, Labour Prime Minister Peter Fraser played an important role in the establishment of the United Nations, of which New Zealand was a founding member. Although domestically, the Labour Party had lost the reforming zeal it had in the 1930s, and its electoral support had ebbed after the war, um, it lost power in 1949, and the Conservative National Party, that's what it's called, the National Party, um, they began an almost continuous 30-year stint in government um, from the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Um, there was a 1951 waterfront dispute um, uh, that really had the National Party re uh, reach preeminence and sat a lot of the Labor Party's um, convictions. Doop, doop, doop. All right, now let's see. In the 50s, we have cooperation with the United States to set up a direction of um, this ANZUS treaty between New Zealand, America, and Australia, um, which led to participation in the Korean War, 
through this alliance. Um, okay, there was huge shifts from rural and agricultural living to urbanization in the 20th century in New Zealand. So the shift to the cities was caused by really strong birth rates in the early 1900s. And these existing rural farms of the Maori peoples um, that they owned, uh, they're having increased difficulty providing enough jobs to the native peoples. And then Maori culture itself had undergone a renaissance thanks to uh, a, a native politician named Apirana Nagata. And by the, 18, uh, the 1980s, 80% of the Maori population was urban, as contrasted only seventy six I mean, only 20% before the Second World War. So it's a huge urbanization shift, great migration. Uh, these migrations led to better pay, higher standards of living, and longer schooling, but also exposed problems of like racism and discrimination. By the 1960s, a protest movement had emerged to combat racism, to promote Maori culture, and to seek fulfillment of the Treaty of Waitangi. <laughs> Never really <laughs> fulfilled yet. Um, um, in the 1940s, people had noted that the country was possibly the third most urbanized country in the world because oh. you have these, you really have these un- inhospitable mountain ranges, you know. Right, yeah, of habitable land. We can't all live it's in the gap be. of Rohan. So we have to move to these big cities. Um, and people thought that the cities itself were like poorly managed in the early 1900s um, because they said, um, a very British quote, there was an ill-defined urban pattern that appears to have few of the truly desirable urban qualities and yet manifests no compensating rural characteristics, which basically means they shouldn't have had huge cities, but they did because they did. Okay, so this gives us another like, really modern history, 1970s, 1980s. The country's, the country's economy suffered in the aftermath of the 1973 global energy crisis, thanks Carter. I'm just kidding, it wasn't his fault. And the loss of New Zealand's biggest export market, once Britain entered into the Euro- European Economic Community, um, and eventually the European Union, and there was rampant inflation. Robert Muldoon, uh, Prime Minister from 1975 to 1984, he's there, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. Uh, okay. And his third national government responded to the crises of the 1970s by attempting to preserve the New Zealand of the 1950s. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Iron Iron Lady or stuff right here. He attempted to maintain New Zealand's cradle-to-grave welfare state, which was dated back to 1935. And this came out of the Great Depression of uh, New Zealand, where they had this really, really comprehensive welfare system of helping people. His government sought to give it give retirees 80% of the current wage. Um, it required large-scale borrowing. People said it would bankrupt the treasury. Um, but he responded to the crisis um, as best he could. Uh, his conservatism and antagonistic style exacerbated an atmosphere of conflict in New Zealand, most, uh, most violently expressed during the 1981 Springbok Tour, which I had to look up. That's a, a rugby national tour. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, so you mean African land animals that are antlered, which is what a Springbok is? Oh, I have no idea. It's fine. It's Keep going. <laughs> in the 1984 elections, the Labour Party promised to calm down the increasing tensions well, it didn't have, even have to make any specific promises. It won a landslide victory because they just didn't like Muldoon anymore. Okay. So the, 19th, the 20th century ends um, from the 80s forward. Um, you have the fourth labor government taking over, led, led by David Lang. Uh, he, he was elected amid a constitutional economic crisis that Muldoon left him. 
And the crisis led the incoming government to review New Zealand's constitutional structures, which resulted in the Constitution Act of 1986. And while it was in power, the Labour government um, launched a major policy of restructuring the economy, and they radically reduced the role of government. And one political scientist said that between 1984 and 1993, New Zealand underwent radical economic reform, moving from what has probably been the most protected, regulated, and state-dominant system of any capitalist democracy to an extreme position at the open, competitive, free end, mark end of the spectrum, free market end of the spectrum. I have a note here that says, thanks, Reagan. Um, let's see, there's some interesting stuff here about foreign policy, where the fourth labor government uh, revolutionized their foreign policy. They made the country a nuclear free zone, and they effectively left this um, ANZUS alliance with Australia and US. Um, so this is really weird. The French intelligence service sank a ship known as the Rainbow Warrior, which was the flagship Greenpeace ship, and he sent, they sank that ship um, in a harbor in New Zealand. Um, lots of diplomatic ramifications followed this incident, um, and they because New Zealand really promoted this, this uh, anti-nuclear stance um, in solidarity with Greenpeace, and uh, when the French foreign intelligence services sank the ship in their harbor um, in the it was on its way to a to protest against a planned French nuclear test in Mororoa um, and then a, uh, a photographer drowned on the sinking ship who was New Zealand who was a Kiwi um, very strange this whole incident um, I never heard about it until I read about it for this podcast um, so some more political stuff. One of the many gifts of this podcast. Yes. Learning about. <laughs> I, learned a, I learned a thing. Um, so this is like the ending slides here about the modern day kind of political stuff. Um, I mean, uh, some some big things have happened. There was there was an earthquake, um, but this is mainly what I have here is just um, them becoming more prominent in their own their own self rule. The fifth Labour government, led by Helen Clark, was elected in 1999. It was in power for nine years. It maintained a lot of economic reforms. Uh, one interesting thing they did was they eliminated interest payments uh, for New Zealand residents who were students and graduates as part of their student loan system, so it was cheaper to go to school. Um, New Zealand today retained strong but informal links to Britain, with many young New Zealanders traveling to Britain for their OE, or overseas experience, and vice versa. A lot of British people come to New Zealand for tourism. Uh, and they used this overseas experience due to favorable working visa arrangements with Britain. Uh, despite New Zealand's immigration liberalization in the 1980s, uh, Britons are still the largest group of migrants to New Zealand, due in part to recent immigration law changes and because you know, they all speak English. And there's one big constitutional link to Britain. You know, New Zealand's head of state is the Queen. Um, although they did discontinue British imperial honors, I think like knighthood and stuff, in 1996. And the governor general that Kiki mentioned, that position has been um, less active um, in, in, in current times. Yeah, the governor general, the only, like, I learned about this position because Canada got a new one recently. And everyone's yeah. just like, it just kind of reminds us that we're a Commonwealth country. Yeah. They go to ribbon cuttings, stuff like that, which I imagine it's really a ceremonial role. Um, and then the... Uh... The, the Court of Appeal as part of the Commonwealth system was replaced by this local Supreme Court in 2003. And there's public debate now about whether New Zealand should become a republic itself or um, 
or stay within the Commonwealth. And public sentiment is very divided on the issue. People love that Union Jack. Um, let's see. And so we're now at this is pretty much modern history, present day kind of stuff. Um, the National Party won victory in 2008. Um, it's the fifth national government New Zealand's had. In 2011, there was a major earthquake in Christchurch, which is the second largest city. Um, the foreign policy kind of stuff. They withdrawed the New Zealand Defense Force um, from their deployment in Afghanistan. Uh, they signed the Wellington Declaration with the United States, and they want more people to join the Trans-Pacific Strategic Economic Partnership. And then their economy today is heavily based on international tourism, as well as agricultural exports of meat, dairy, and wool, and other stuff like more terroir stuff like fruit, wine, timber, as the economy is diversified. So that's going to end our history, which went a little longer than I thought it would. Um, but that's good. Very interesting. Yep. And Let's take a break. Take and a then break. we'll come back with some cultural discussion. In the flag corner. In the flag corner. All right. See you then. As is tradition, we're going to kick things back off with the trip to Kiki in the flag corner. My favorite segment. All right, so this is the first flag that we have in this podcast that features the Union Jack. The Union Jack, um, most people may recognize as the flag of the UK because it incorporates the cross of St. Andrew, counterchanged with the cross of St. Patrick, crossed with the cross of St. George. So all these crosses together represent um, England, Wales, I thought Scotland and Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the Union Jack means, and the colors are, are recognized as pan-British colors. And so for the New Zealand flag, that goes into the corner of the regular flag, blue field, and then we have the Southern Cross, or the Crew Australis, which is also on the Australian flag, although the Australian flag has a big old star on there also to indicate that they're different, because <laughs> otherwise these flags would be exactly the same. Interesting. Um, the Union Jack obviously represents New Zealand's origins as a British colony, and the Southern Cross is a constellation that is one of the most striking features, according to Wikipedia, of the Southern Hemisphere sky, and has been used to represent New Zealand, among other Southern Hemisphere colonies, <laughs> Australia, and uh, since the early days of European settlement. And in Maori mythology, the Southern Cross is identified as Mahutonga, um, an aperture in Te Ikaroa, through which storm winds escape. So yeah, big blue flag with a Union Jack in the corner and the Southern Cross right on next to it. I know they had some talks of redesigning it recently. Yeah, because like, if they don't want to be a Commonwealth country, they don't want to have the Union Jack on it. And there are other Commonwealth countries that don't have the Union Jack on it, like Canada being an obvious example, um, Antigua and Barbuda, mm-hmm. also without the Union Jack. And so... This, this flag itself was chosen or adopted in 1902. They had other flags up for debate before that, like Maori chiefs had one that had St. George's Cross um, with other stars and stuff on it. So, yeah, they might be changing it uh, pretty soon. Or, I mean, I guess, like, they voted on this as early as 2016. So... I mean, it'd be really exciting if we have a flag change coming up that we can address in flag That'd be corner. awesome. Um, in, the, in the 2016 vote, 
they decided to keep it by 57% to 43% vote. So they're kind of clinging on. Like, I feel like with some time and with some good talking, I mean, they would have a new flag soon. Yeah. I mean, because they voted on it, the new flag would have to be so much better to make up for the fact that, like, the old one has, like, tradition and historical relevance. Yeah. And, like, people are used to it. I think it'd be cool if they just had a Kiwi, like, like a Canadian flag, but with a Kiwi on like like a red kiwi on a blue background that's what i would vote for that'd be cute um anyway so i've got a lot of things to say about australia not australia new zealand yikes (laughs) say them kiki um let's talk let's discuss so i feel like number one lord of the rings it's something we both care about we just had that yeah that big watching fest and like here's the thing like i don't know how much better a film adaptation of lord of the rings could be other than peter jackson's because there have been, like, the, I've seen the animated one, which is weird. And there'd be topped. And, like, I know Amazon's making a new one. But honestly, it's just, like, I cannot imagine Middle Earth outside of the realm that Peter Jackson created. Night, I mean, I guess I could. I could I could go deep within the realms of my mind. I guess it's a choice of, like, I don't really want to. Because that movie was so striking and so beautiful. And so, I mean, we're not talking about the fucking Hobbit here. Never mention the Hobbit to me in this house or my own house. <laughs> Any house. Yeah, if there's if some, but like, yeah, that that is Middle Earth to me. It lo- it looks the in part a beautiful, pure form. And the New Zealand government, from what I understand, had a lot of like, yeah, go for it. We'll support you. They were like trying to get their burgeoning film industry going, and they had a lot of support for the. Lord of the Rings trilogy, and they've recouped mm-hmm. the benefits in tourism and like ticket sales. And like, stuff and they're like that. saying that like Peter Jackson, Kiwi himself, employed like huge amounts of oh, New yeah. Zealanders. I mean, and it was just kind of cool. Um, when I so here's the thing, I'm not used to being the one who knows the least about Lord of the Rings in a room. But when I was watching with uh, Brad and my roommate Hannah, I definitely was. <laughs> Because Hannah had been there and she did several. She said she spent over $1,000 on Lord of the Rings tours. It's a lot. It's quite a bit of money. It'd like be a scene. She'd be like, I've been there. Yep. It would be like, I wasn't there. I did that. I did that. I trust that rock. Like, okay, good, good job, Hannah. Um, you did it. But there's cool things where they're like, if there's like teenage girls who knew how to ride horses, those were the riders of Rohan. Yep. Because um, they had time off of school. <laughs> they didn't have to work. Um and like you saw like at the airport in a promotion for the film they had a giant smeagol looking for a fish that's awesome coming from like the ceiling so i feel like that's a huge part of what i mean many of us know about new zealand um and if someone says they don't like the peter jackson adaptation i would like them to explain why and some i think some arguments are legitimate but generally i'm just think that's what i like that's that's my shit um other cool things i'd like to talk about with new zealand obviously the movie whale rider obviously which was it came out in 2002 and my parents i'm sure unknowingly gave like we watched a lot of like girl power films mm-hmm. in my household without like realizing like we watched legally blonde because like it's like it's funny but then i'm like oh man those messages carried through <laughs> <laughs> um but whale rider i'm not gonna like ruin it because i definitely recommend seeing it but it's also like one of those first international movies that like introduced me to a, a tribal structure that wasn't so heavily fictionalized. Like, like these are real people who exist, or the Maori people. Yeah. Um, so the movie follows the plot of a girl named Paikia Aparana. Um, so named for the uh, Paikia. Uh, he's a, a literal and a mythical hero who rode a whale from Hawaii, the 
um, homeland of the Polynesian Maori people to the island where they live. Um, and so him coming on a whale is a huge cultural symbol for them, and it's a good legend. I'm s- no, keep going. Was something funny about no, this? No, uh, So Pikea, the girl, is born a twin, and her brother dies at birth uh, along with her mother. Mm-hmm. And her father, who is like her grandfather's the chief, her father's like, in line, and her, her father's like, I can't, I can't deal with this. I don't want to be here. He moves to Germany, and he leaves his baby girl, who's named Pikey, which is a boy's name, and his grandfather, the chief, or her grandfather, the chief, his father, the chief, is like, fuck no, you're not naming this baby girl Pikeia because this baby's going to be the, the chief. The boy who was supposed to have lived should have been the chief. Mm-hmm. And he's like, my girl's going to be the chief, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm dipping out. He moves to Germany. He's an artist. And she's raised by her very traditional grandparents, the chief of the tribe. And like when she's like 13 years old, um, the chief realizes he needs to find a successor. So he starts a cultural school for boys to figure out who's going to be the next chief because his line is ending. And then like Pikea passes all these tests, but her grandfather's like, no fucking girls. And then, um, I mean, there's something with whales. And it's a lot of like... They... There's something with whales. It's <laughs> a big thing with whales. Um, but like you learn words like a taiaha, which is a Maori fighting stick. And they show in the movie, you know, how they fight. And they show a haka type thing. Um, and it's a really, really cool movie. Definitely recommend it. It was one of those things that I, you, you just got to watch it because it's one of the things everyone would skip over because the cover is this girl underwater with her, like, hands up, and she's smiling. And also this girl ended up being in, she is one of the sand snakes in Game of Thrones. Really? Yeah, her name is Keisha Castle Hughes. She was also Mary in the Nativity story. But she was like the youngest girl ever to be nominated for an Academy Award because she was literally at school in New Zealand and a casting director came in um, and held a workshop and she stood out. And now she's at like a big acting career. There you go. Um, anyway, Whale Rider, that's another thing. The third thing about New Zealand I wanted to talk about was birds. You brought up the moa, a 12-foot monster. Um, and tasty too, apparently. Yeah, and apparently delicious. <laughs> These were like their only natural enemy was something called the Hosts. Maybe it's like Hosts or oh, it's a it's a Dutch name, so it's Hast um, Eagle, and it's this giant fucking eagles. I imagine the Lord of the Rings eagles, obviously. Holy shit! But they were like the largest eagles ever. The only predator to these twelve foot birds. So when the moa died out, so did these giant giant eagles. I want one. Um, but I really like. I don't. I I think birds are neat. I am a bird watcher, and so like I would, I would have loved to see these kind of things. And you could still see skeletons of them. Another fun fact is that the moa is one of the top candidates for being reintroduced through um, genetic copies and like cloning. That's a cool thing. Um, my third bird to talk about is the kiwi itself. It's a huge symbol of New Zealand, um, and like and how they're called. People are called kiwis too. Um, if you look at the Wikipedia, they have. A New Zealand or a man holding a bird and the caption is a kiwi holding a kiwi and I don't know why but it just gets me <laughs> I, I saw a um, there's a picture of a kiwi bird and it's eating a kiwi fruit and it says unsuspecting kiwi engages in cannibalism <laughs> it's hilarious uh, kiwi fruit is native uh, they're called I think like Chinese gooseberries too which is funny um, but the kiwi is such a huge symbol to New Zealand people they're also called kiwis as we've mentioned this is not a derogatory thing as confirmed by uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, kiwis themselves are flightless birds. 
And they're just cute little guys. <laughs> they're just they're just precious little birds with long beaks. Oh, that's funny. It says originally in 1811, they uh, when they first saw a skeleton, they called it a type of penguin. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got an upright bird. <laughs> that's cute. Um, and while I was talking to Brad during the break, the symbol of the Royal New Zealand Air Force is a red kiwi in a silhouette. And I think it's funny that an Air Force would have a flightless bird, bird in the yeah. middle. Uh, yeah, yeah, people people fucking love them there. Let's save the kiwis. Uh, I don't know if they're endangered, but I just want to make sure they're they're okay. All right, what do you have to talk about, New Zealand? Um, I was gonna touch on the the things that are hugely emblematic of like culture in New Zealand. So you have things like the haka, which are you know um, directly derived from the Maori culture. Mm-hmm. It's like this cha- It's like warfare kind yeah, of an, challenge, an, an intimidation challenge. Yeah. Dance? Uh, you, you can Google Hakka and yeah. like look up All Blacks Hakka because yeah. All Blacks are New Zealand's rugby team. Yeah, and if you're a lady, like it gets you going. Probably if you're a man too. Um, but I'm very into watching the All Blacks Hakka yeah. every year. They're hugely um, they're like they're a they're the best rugby team in the world as far as like um, performance historically. I think they're the reigning world champions too. They're I like they're so. great yeah, at rugby. The All Blacks are legit. And they did the haka, and they have some great iterations, like at the world before the World Cup finals of, of rugby and stuff like that. Um, Maori tattoos are another big part of, of Maori culture. They have some of the most striking um, facial tattoos. Is because they're very um, that very well known. Um, the moko are the, the the chin tattoo from the from the lips down to the chin, um, as well as like some really really notable like. Um, uh, What's it called? Uh, textile patterns, lots of geometric shapes, very, very beautiful. Um, local greenstone or that, that, that mineral fashion, like earrings and necklaces. They have a very, very beautiful kind of um, cultural art and um, iconography um, in New Zealand today. Uh, tourism is really, really big at that. Um, the film tourism. They also have like adventure or like adrenal tourism. People go there for like. You know, like water sport and like bungee jumping and like stuff like that. Like there's the huge destination cool. people who are like thrill seekers. Um, we talked about the flag and how it's. Um, they talked about changing it, maybe looking for a little bit of um, independence. Kiki, anything else you want to talk about? Um, I wanted to bring up briefly Moana um, as a movie that celebrates. I guess I could say that maybe exploits Polynesian descent. Um, and like the god Maui, I haven't seen Moana actually, but I know so it's really good. I would say it's finally getting past the point of in-your-face Disney exploitation and more like healthy references and broaching mm-hmm. of a topic. Um, but I think like as a shared Polynesian, I guess pan-Polynesian culture, like there's some similarities that people might associate Moana with the Maori people. Um, in the other tra- traditional tribes of New Zealand. So I thought that's like something that might be some young kid's first introduction mm-hmm. to this, the same way Royal Rider was for me. Uh, but that's, I guess, yeah, the last thing I have to say. Um, my, my final thing is that I read the thing about uh, New Z- uh, cuisine in New Zealand, and they have something very, very similar to like um, like crawfish boils. Oh, nice. Um, I thought that was delicious. Not nice. from I don't the eat south. They have distinctive ingredients and dishes. Some are like um, also born of ingredients from like European settlers. They have like things like lamb, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> they have some mutton. Um, they also have some local stuff like uh, koura, which is like crayfish. They have oysters, uh, uh, 
paua, which is like abalone, which is a kind of mussel, I think. Really, oh, cool. really, really rare, uh, very, very valuable uh, mussel slash shellfish. Scallops. Uh, um, they have uh, tua tua, which are part a type of shellfish. They have like sweet potatoes. Uh, they have kiwi fruits. Um, yeah, they have lots and lots of like this. Ooh, and pavlova, my pavlova. favorite summer dessert. What's that? It's like um, meringue discs with whipped cream and fresh fruit. Hell yeah. And it's just kind of like all stacked up together. So it's kind of like light and fruity and you get some acidity. And so there's like crunch from the meringue, but like soft pillowiness from the whipped cream and stuff. It's great. Um, so they have this this thing called the, the hangi or the hangi. And it's a, a method of cooking food using heated rocks buried in a pit oven. Um, and all the pictures of it just make it look delicious and uh, I would love to have a podcast and on videos or on whatever. Every place we visit, I would love to like have like their their best traditional meal. Wish mm-hmm. we could do that. Um, when we get um, our Fiji water checks, yeah, we're gonna go on an international in. tour right after we graduate. We're just gonna eat around the world. Um, you'll do most of the eating, and I'll do most of the offending because I don't eat meat, and I can't be tempted into it. Most of the offending. Um, and so, like, I don't want to like. Here's the thing about hospitality culture. It's my biggest fear that someone will offer me something, and I. I mean, I guess I will accept it, but then I think I'll get sick, and that would be even more offensive, because um, I won't know how to explain that I don't eat meat. Yeah. Because we're talking to, like, Cher, and he says, like, in Tajikistan, like, if someone offers you meat, it's very valuable. It's um, yeah. it's very offensive to say no also. So it's like, yep, I guess next time I go to Tajikistan, I will become a meat eater again temporarily. The world as we taste it. <laughs> anyway, the world as we taste it. Our next podcast, uh, keep in line. Um, but while you're listening to us, remember to follow us on Twitter at, at the world podcast, um, dot twitter.com. Just kidding. We're just at the world podcast. You can also find our Facebook page, Got the em. world as we know it podcast. Uh, yeah, I got that. It was an abrupt. We don't have any new, any new reviews this week. No new hotties to join to the club. My post FR rating, I'm gonna say it's a six. What about six. you? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go from a two slash three up to a five. Yeah, cool. I, I wouldn't say I know a lot about New Zealand, but I know enough to say I know more than the average person. Yeah, I think that's what I love the most about this podcast is in general knowing more about more things. Yep, um, for sure. Not reading anything new this week. I did start a new romance novel called Outback Station. I'm only a few chapters in. It's not so promising. Usually, like you, have, they have to grab your attention in the first, you know, chapter, and and so far, it's just like, oh, look, an ex-con in Australia, who's, uh, get this, not that guilty, <laughs> uh, and a woman who is the cousin of the man he killed, allegedly, and guess what? I bet they're gonna fall in love. <laughs> Steamy. Um... Inspired by Kiki, I asked my parents for Christmas. I had one of the original Kindles. Nice. And it's old. Yeah. But I asked for one of the newer, the newer ones, like the paper white ones. And I also, I'm going to try out a Kindle Unlimited. So Ooh, try wow. some, read some books, try some new stuff. Because it's it's hard for me to break out of my genres, which are like, you know, long fantasy series and sci-fi books, and like, you know, if I want to read like, I'll go read back like a classic novel, like a famous yeah. novel. It's really hard to find good books to read because generally whatever is on the New York Times bestseller list doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, things that have mass appeal, I don't want to say are not like invaluable, but I'm just like, it's not my style. Mm-hmm. And I do prefer like nonfiction. So I'm trying to read more fiction to expar- expand my imagination. Anyway, I guess that's it. Yeah. 
why don't you wrap us up? Well, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in to uh, another episode of the World As We Know It podcast. Catch us next week for our country of Mongolia. Mongolia. And until then... Uh, <laughs> Kiki, how, how are we going to say goodbye in Here's Maori? the thing. I was... Uh, oh, it's hard. Oh, good. <laughs> it looks like Poro Poro Aki or Poro Poro Aki. All right. So until then... Poro Poro, poro Aki. Poro aki. <laughs>